Darren Fox, and this is the Fast Leader Leadership Podcast. And today we are talking about COVID, more specifically, coping through COVID. We're talking about the coping mechanisms that people have used to get through not just the immediate crisis, but also the long haul, which might actually require some different skills. So talking about how we have coped ourselves, but just as importantly, how we as managers and people leaders can help our people cope through the crisis over an extended period of time. Because even though that we're receiving some good news recently about a new vaccine, and it might be ready as early as March in 2021, all the reports are suggesting even if that does happen, we're still looking at 2022 before anything has even coming close to a sense of normal. So to help us with that conversation, I've got two experts on the podcast today. So firstly, we've got Mark Butler, and he's the mental health strategist and author and educator. I met Mark first through being a co-author with 16 other authors on a book called What the Hell Do We Do Now? And that's available on Amazon.com. And Kim Ambor, who's an executive coach, organizational psychologist, and founder of Career Power. Mark and Kim, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Darren. So I thought we might start just with a personal question. In Australia, when the COVID crisis was at its peak, at its worst, How did that impact you and how did it impact the people around you? Mark, start with you. Sure. Thanks, Darren. For me personally, I shifted out of a corporate mindset and into a supportive role. Being a clinical specialist and involved in that side of mental health, I had a pretty good idea of what was coming, just like everybody else. Didn't know how long it was going to go for or how big it was going to get. But I knew what was going to be happening for people when it came to things like isolating and feeling sort of unsure in a crowded space. So for me, it was like watching a sort of a tsunami wave approaching, and I switched into a role where I could be supportive of people around me. Hmm. That was my reaction to it. Thanks, Mark. And what was the impact for you, Kim, and the people around you? Yeah, probably a little bit different to Mark. So we're a family of four. We went from everybody out the house most of the day to suddenly my husband and I working from home and homeschooling two children, uh, one of whom had just started high school, which was an interesting state to be in. And so we had to kind of find our way and find our space. The way that it affected them, my kids are extremely resilient. They just kind of took to being online, being homeschooled, things like that. We just had to find our space and respect it. So some of the strategies we used was everybody allocated to a room, being very mindful, closing doors, noise cancelling headphones. We all took our lunch break at the same time, so there was less noise factor and things like that. Okay, thank you. Let's sort of switch then in terms of how did you actually cope? So what were your sort of personal coping mechanisms that you used to get through that? And how did you end up helping the people around you as well? So let's, this time, Kim, how about we start with your response to that question? Sure. In terms of personal coping mechanism, my natural style is to reach out to family and friends. So I reached out to my peers as well as my family as support. Other things that we did was try to keep the kids in a routine as much as possible. So still waking up on time, making school lunches, even though they weren't going to school, but that they had lunch for the day, keeping them in the exercise routines, even though we weren't exercising out of the home, making sure that they were going to bed at a reasonable hour, limiting screen times, and trying to do things that were non-screen related at the end of the day, so my children weren't goggle-eyed by the end of it. (laughs) The exercise piece is something that I just can't emphasize the importance enough because I was a gym junkie 
uh, for about eight years prior to COVID, I would hit the gyms every morning by 5.30, maybe a bit earlier. Then when COVID started coming around the corner, I stopped. Paranoid me said, this is way too dangerous. Surely the gyms must be the most contagious thing on the world. In actual fact, we find that gyms were a very uncommon place as a vector for it to be contagious. And then found it very difficult to get back into a routine at home. And even though I had a bench and weights, I know it makes such a big difference to my mood. Like on the days that I do exercise in the morning, I'm in a much better mood. On the days that I don't, I'm in a less positive mood. And how important that is, how obvious it is to just have some sort of exercise routine. Because it's something that you control. The only person who takes it away from you is, is you. And Mark, what was your coping mechanism for yourself and helping others around you? Yeah, largely similar to both yourself and Kim, Darren. Exercise features in my day quite a bit. Spin classes were my weapon of choice when I came to the gym. But I'm also, I do some work as a clinical director for an early sort of intervention treatment facility up in the Northern Rivers here. And of course, I'm used to dealing with people who arrive either in crisis or fairly close to it. So the whole idea of grounding and settling somebody so that they can be at peace with themselves and then starting gentle exercise, et cetera, is all part of what we do. So that was top of mind for me all the time, getting into that sort of mindful space and doing what exercise I could. It wasn't as good as I was doing at the gym, just like yourself, but self-care, self-compassion. This is uh, unpleasant or even harsher words than that. And, and it's okay. It's where we are right now. I think that's important. Okay. Kim, a few months ago, you were in a podcast around Are You Okay Day? And we had a sense that obviously mental health issues must be increasing. But at that point, there was no reporting or research. So I'm just wondering for both of you, in terms of your lines of work, have you come across yet documented reports or research that actually is showing an increase in mental health issues? And what are those findings? So yeah, absolutely. Mark, feel free to jump in. The latest stats that I've seen, and this comes from Black Dog Institute, is over the past six months, there has been a 25% rise in anxiety, about a 33% rise in depression. We also seeing some of the stats that are coming out of organizations. People are taking on average two days sick leave, inverted commas, for mental health. It's costing the Australian economy about $12 billion a year. So these are some of the more quantitative things. Mark, back me up. I don't know about you, but in private practice, qualitatively, I am seeing a huge rise in more generalized anxiety and a lot more in more severe and prolonged cases of depression. Mark, what's your experience? Yeah, very, very similar. I read a Monash University report that came out very recently, and their findings were very similar to what you're talking about, Kim. But a couple of other ones that stuck out for me were traditionally anxiety is the number one mental health issue that you'll find in the workplace. Yeah, it's not necessarily something that contributes massively to absenteeism, but it can to presenteeism where people aren't functioning as, as well as they could. But what I think the Monash University research found was for the first time, depression overtook anxiety as the number one issue. And that doesn't sound like much of a difference in itself, but in actual fact, it's a red flag because what it speaks to is people with anxiety have been struggling with the issue for so long that it's starting to wear them down. So now you're on a slippery slope 
to burnout, etc. And the other problem with depression is it does feed into the whole idea of absenteeism and presenteeism, but also if people need time off as a result of depression, the time off can be up to five times longer than any other condition. So that's something for businesses to be aware of. Absenteeism is going to rise, presenteeism is going to rise, and then the things you have to watch out for around that. People who have no sick leave and no holidays left, are they just turning up to work because they can't afford not to? Or if they have loads of sick leave and loads of holiday time left, have they not been taking the breaks they need to take? Yeah. And certainly when I talk to heads of HR, HR directors and whatnot, the emphasis of workforce strategy has shifted. Yeah. Mental health and well-being was sort of like a sideline on your workforce strategy in the past. Yeah. And now it's really much shifted to the core. It is the central piece of their workforce strategy in terms of how they handle mental health issues, how they support well-being, how they skill up managers to have those conversations, how they remove the stigma of having these conversations within the workplace. Yeah. And a lot of the questions I'm being asked is, you know, do I have any experience? Do I know anybody? As opposed to a year ago being asked, how do you lift performance? How do you change culture? Yeah. It's all mental health and well-being. How do we do that? Yeah. And I also think, you know, in terms of like the Work Health and Safety Act, people are really good at the typical OHS things, you know, not tripping over wires. But as you say, Darren, is there's a strong move at the moment to have the psychological safety. How do we provide a psychologically safe environment where it's okay not to be okay? That if I'm having issues that I can reach out, that I have escalation channels to reach out to. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, and you're right, Darren, when you speak to psychological mental health now is beginning finally and thankfully, to be seen as important as physical health. We need to find out what's the equivalent to putting on your high-vis vest when you have to go out into the yard or onto the work site. You know, there needs to be something like that. Because if you speak to someone, and pretty much any of us, if we said on a scale of 1 to 100, where would you see your physical health right now? And we know that that doesn't shift very much unless you break a leg or catch the flu or something like that but it's reasonably static. And we all take steps to either maintain it or improve our physical health, right? That's what we do. But if you ask somebody around their mental health, we have a tendency to think that it's either there or not. It's so it's switched on or off. But in actual fact, our mental health would live on exactly that same spectrum of one to 100. So if you could tell where your physical health is, you, you should be able to tell where your mental health is. But it fluctuates massively and even over the course of a day. What's stopping us from doing that, I think, is the fear of being judged, that stigma you've heard to a little while ago. People are terrified to reach out and speak up because it might harm my job or my career. I might be seen as weak, judged as not being a team player. And look, that fear, that's a survival instinct that's built into us. If we're the slowest one in the tribe, we risk being pushed aside and pushed out, and then we're finished. So there's evolutionary reasons behind it. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. People managers know that they should be encouraging conversations and talking openly about mental health within the team, but are scared to because they have no idea how to respond. Yeah, They're much more scared about how to respond to someone else's issues as opposed to talking about themselves. Yeah. It's an important skill that managers need to have in organizations supporting their managers to develop that skill. 
And Darren, there's also a stigma around, you know, I'm a manager, I should be able to handle it. Yeah, And so, you know, not showing that level of vulnerability. You know, Mark, to your point around if you have a physical, I don't know, you said broke a leg. If you break a leg, you can see someone in a cast. But if somebody is having anxiety or depression, we can't see it written on their forehead or a high-vis vest. And so it's how do we help the people managers identify the signs and symptoms when their staff aren't doing so well, as well as when they're not doing so well. Yeah. And that's that psychoeducation piece that we're really advocating for. Yeah, it's a large part of my work in, in the last few months, actually, is running a program on exactly that, educating. Because the best leaders would be adept at having the conversation if they knew what it's about. I've had leaders say, look, just tell me what to say and I'll say it. And I go, no, not going to give you a script because the minute you start reciting something to one of your team they're going to think one you don't care two hr told you to have this conversation then therefore i'm at more risk now than i ever was before so really it's it's much more around rebuilding their empathy and managers and leaders have a tendency to think you know i should have the answers i'm supposed to have the answers to everything but in actual fact in this situation you're not all you need to do is create the space for people to lean in and just say, I'm not okay. You don't have to fix it. You're not a counselor. Nobody expects you to know the answers. But you need to be able to empathically and, and safely inquire of somebody how they are. You know what I mean? I've, I've heard people, you know, it's are you okay day to day? Nobody throw themselves off the building, all right? And kind of <laughs> that's the end of it. Yeah, exactly, you know? And you're, you're absolutely right, Kim. We're experts at hiding it. Quite often, managers or us as individuals were taught how to deal with a crisis or the immediate stress of a difficult issue. But we're in a different situation now. This, this is a very sort of long-haul, sustained crisis. And there is no end state that we can be certain of. Not only are we can say for certain that we're going to get through this, we're not sure that when we do, what actually is the new normal going to look like which is sort of the, the premise of the book that Mark and I worked on. So again, utilizing your knowledge and skills in this area, what are the coping mechanisms that people can use around the long haul? So this long sustained crisis that is different from dealing with the peak of the crisis. Kim, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think at the start of the crisis, everyone went into complete fight or flight mode. Everyone had a huge trajectory in how do we use Zoom? How do we set ourselves up to be technically proficient? And then suddenly everything was online. It was a heightened sense of checking in, etc. Soon after that, we started getting Zoom fatigue, compassion fatigue, change fatigue, isolation, all those sorts of things. So we went on a bit of an emotional roller coaster. I think in the long term, though, the things that are going to sustain us are the fundamental, what we call the protective factors. So there's four of them. The first and foremost would be the support. So getting support from family, friends, people in the community, uh, co-workers, etc., Anything around support structures, and Mark, you can attest, lots of evidence, people who are more supported at an interpersonal level cope a lot better, reduced anxiety, depression with a stronger and faster turnaround. The next three are real, one of those not rocket science, exercise, absolutely, like we've all been advocating. So regular exercise, keeping those endorphin levels up and the stress levels down, eating correctly and getting enough sleep. 
What we are finding is, especially during the crisis, we were all going to bed a lot later, our sleeping patterns were thrown out, Netflix subscriptions went through the roof. And so it's just kind of getting back into a routine, you know, from people leaders is find your feet, find the balance of your team, and also find the way that they prefer to be communicated with, whether it's phone, whether it's via Slack, WhatsApp chats, things like that. And there's a fine line between are we zooming them out? Are they having camera fatigue versus checking in? So just if you're a people leader, making sure that you're okay with where your people are at and how do we communicate most effectively to them. Mark, I can see yep. you've got something to say. Do you want to add to that? I'm underlining everything you said, Kim, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> I get asked a lot, how come, despite everything we're doing, mental health issues are still on the rise? And they are. And people can blame digital technology, etc. But the bottom line is, and you spoke to it beautifully, Kim, we're the only species on the planet that can't seem to feed itself. Right. And we're also the only species on the planet that doesn't actually get enough sleep and rest. I mean, what are we doing? You know what I mean? And it really is. It's back to basics. We went from 7% of the corporate population had the ability to work from home just prior to COVID. And within two weeks, 90% of us could. So if ever we needed an example of how resilient we are and how adaptable to change we are, there were sort of victims of it along the way. Of course there were. But as a species, I think we did really, really well, really, really quickly. And I would say to any people leaders there who are listening, if you think, oh, no, my team's pretty good. We seem to have weathered it all right. Statistically, one in four of your people are going to struggle with a mental health issue this year. Half of us will in our lifetime. But So they either are now or they will in the next 12 months. Be So just look either side of you. If they seem fine, then it's probably you. You know what I mean? So... It's kind of that close, but also the point, uh, and this is some more research, I'm trying to remember where it was. So of that one in four who will experience mental health issue this year, one in four of those, it'll be the first time experiencing a mental health issue. So there are victims and people who have succumbed to the stresses and strains and distress of COVID. Absolutely, there are. And we're even seeing now that, that that one in five people who have been diagnosed with COVID go on to develop a mental health issue from the trauma of it. And it seems to have doubled the dementia diagnoses. So we still don't know the long-term effects of this virus, you know what I mean, and what it does to people. Yeah, really some good good insight. And you know, it relates well to the podcast just prior to this one about the idea of belonging and what you called connectiveness. And it, it really is a self-serving mechanism that a crisis can actually bring people together. And at the same time, that sense of belonging makes the ability to get through a crisis just that much more easier. Do not underestimate the importance of maintaining connection and, and belonging within the team, which I think is a great segue into my final question for you both. What would be your top recommendations to people leaders starting today, starting tomorrow? What could they start doing to really support their teams through this sustained crisis from a mental health and well-being perspective? Sure. Look, I would think for people leaders, have the vulnerability to say to your people, look, I'm not necessarily sure what to look for, but I want you to know that as an organization, we're here to help if we possibly can. 
and to reach out if you think there's some way we can support. I won't have the answers and I won't be able to rescue or save anybody. But if I can make it a comfortable space for you to be able to reach out and just let me know what's happening for you, I will do all I can to support you as best I can. Mm. That way, at least you're creating the environment for people to stay connected and to yeah. reach out if they need the help. Yeah, really important. This idea of creating a sense of safety where that conversation can be had with, you know that there's not going to be any consequence, that we can talk about that in the same way that we can talk about how do you take your coffee, a latte or a cappuccino. Yeah. <laughs> and what's your top hints and tips for people leaders, Kim? Yeah, in terms of providing that psychological safety, so having a climate where it's okay not to be okay, encouraging those are you okay conversations. As Mark said, a lot of psychoeducation, what are the signs, what are the symptoms to look out for in myself, as well as to look out for in other people. Reaching out, staying connected, and having those escalation channels. So whether their internal organization has access to an EAP, so an employee assistance program, a manager assist program, HR, health and wellness teams, so that everybody in the organization knows internally who to go to, as well as externally what support the organization is providing. And then just kind of keep tapping in, as Mark said, if it's not the person to my left and it's not the person to my right, how am I doing? Great. Thanks, Kim, and thanks to both of you for those good hints and tips. We like to make these podcasts as practical as possible for frontline leaders as well, so they can implement some of the ideas that we talk about. Just before we wrap up, we always like to ask our guests to give a brief synopsis of the organizations or with the services that they provide their clients and what they do and, and why they do it. Mark, can you tell us a bit more about what you do? Sure. I wear two hats. I'm wearing one in the clinical space where I'm the clinical director for a high-end treatment facility in the Northern Rivers, mostly on an advisory basis, so bespoke treatments, et cetera. In the corporate sense, my work is around delivering training programs for people leaders in exactly knowing what to say, what to look for, what to do about it when you find it, and upskill people leaders to be able to talk about mental health in a meaningful way. Stressing once again, that you know, you're not clinicians, nobody expects you to have the answers, but you're the front line for creating that psychologically safe place that Kim refers to as well. Great, thank you, Mark. And Kim? Yeah, so at Career Power, we are a group of psychologists, organizational, educational, clinical psychologists. We do psychoeducation in the form of training. We also do executive coaching, life coaching, counseling with Medicare rebates and anything in the career transition space. So have a look, careerpower.com.au. Thanks, Kim. And for anybody listening, we always provide links to our guests in our website, but also in our social networking. So when we promote the podcast on LinkedIn, we always provide links. Thank you to you both for all your hints and tips and all your advice. I found it very interesting. Thank you for sharing your time with us. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Kim. Thanks, Mark. And thanks to our listeners. We'll hear from you next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Fast Leader Podcast. I'm Darren Fox, Chief Research Officer and Principal Consultant at HFL. You can email us at info at with any questions. We'd love to hear ideas about topics for future podcasts. You can also check out the Fast Lead website 
fastlead.com for supporting material from this podcast. Watch out for our future podcasts as we explore each of the 14 Fastlead topics in more detail and discuss some of the latest management research, news, and topical issues of the day. And until next time, this has been the Fastlead Podcast. Thank you. Thank you.